You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Well, harvest season is just around the corner for Hawaii's coffee farmers, but the COVID-19 pandemic has wiped out much of the market to sell what local coffee growers are producing. The plight has been particularly hard for ka'u farmers, uh, ka'u far- coffee farmers who have spent the last 15 years making a name for themselves in the local coffee growing industry. HBR's Ku'ube Hirishi joins us this morning to talk about the plight of some of our farmers. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, our coffee farmers uh, over in Ka'u, so it's that time of year where if you're driving uh, along the highway, you'll see these coffee trees turning from from green to red with the berries ready, uh, ripe for the picking. Uh, But uh, the ones, the coffee farmers that we did speak to have said, you know, last year was so good. They've still got some of that coffee, most of that coffee left. They haven't been able to move it up. And it's, you know, we're talking about a little over 50 probably small coffee farm operations there uh, in the district and a relatively new one. I know uh, you're probably familiar with the growth of Ka'u Coffee as its own brand, right? Distinct uh, from Kona Coffee and other coffees uh, across the state of particularly for Ka'u. You know, this really started when sugar closed shop, closed up shop. Uh, in Ka'u and farmers in Aglan uh, was there waiting for what's the next crop? Coffee became something that uh, folks really uh, held on to. And they uh, won top awards. They have. They really have been. So 1996 is when uh, C. Brewer had closed up shop uh, with its sugar operations in Ka'u. And then maybe the next 10 years was spent trying to get to those cupping competitions and make a name for themselves. Um, and they have. By 2006, uh, it was a recognizable brand for a lot of coffee connoisseurs. Um, but this year has been particularly hard with COVID. Uh, Lou Danielli, who runs the Ka'u Coffee Mill, uh, says things had been going well for the industry until COVID-19. We had a very good year last year. I bought, you know, about a $1.2 million worth of coffee cherry from these folks down here. So usually I'm selling vast amounts of coffee into Starbucks, into Japan, South Korea. You know, when everything was normal, um, you know, I have no problem moving this stuff. But, but at the end of the day, I am stuck with all that coffee that I have not been able to move. So my warehouses are completely full. I'm sitting on about 90,000 pounds of green bean that I just cannot move. All right. So coffee is one of Hawaii's top agricultural products along things like macadamia nuts, papayas. Uh, according to the State Department of Agriculture, Hawaii is the largest producer of coffee in the country. And uh, so as Danielli tells us, you know, coffee farmers have been kind of kept out of the loop when it comes to federal assistance under the CARES Act that was passed earlier this year. So there was uh, financial assistance that was offered to farmers and ranchers uh, under the coronavirus food assistance program. This was about $16 billion in direct payments. Uh, But there's this list of specialty crops that uh, qualify for assistance in coffee. Uh, Amazingly, was not on that list. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And so, and I don't, there's really no idea of how that happened, but we do know that uh, Hawaii's congressional delegation has, you know, urged uh, the USDA to add coffee to its list. Uh, They sent a letter back in May uh, to the USDA and the USDA had revised its list, but again, did not include coffee back in July. Uh, so coffee farmers are a bit desperate right now trying to figure out 
one, how they're going to move last year's coffee. But now that we're looking at harvest season coming up, what are we, you know, what are we going to do? I spoke to a longtime uh, coffee grower, Leonor Berte, uh, 75 years old, and he just told me he still works eight hours a day, sometimes 10, <laughs> seven days a week, uh, tending to his 50-acre coffee farm in Kau. And he really is not sure what's uh, going to happen next because he's also sitting on his coffee bean from last year. I sell all roasted to all the store, but now no can sell because nobody buys. The EBC store, the KTA, Cosiolis, Choice Mart, nobody buys. So every month I losing over twenty thousand every month. Next month because the harvest again and the problem is how you know our pickers they in the mainland so they gotta go quarantine and I don't know if they like come. So compounding the impact there is yes, seasonal laborers who uh, are flown in. So Norberte says he brings in a handful, 10 to 15 uh, folks from Alaska mainly, but also some of the Pacific Northwest uh, laborers to come and just pick coffee for the coffee season. No kidding. I mean, I didn't know that. Right. And he he's not sure. He hasn't heard uh, to see if they're confirmed to come. But we did speak to another coffee farm owner, Berta Miranda, who owns Miranda Farms in Kau, who says she just got the call last week from about a handful of her workers, seasonal laborers in Washington State, who said they are not uh, going to come. It's not worth it to them, especially with what's going on right now in terms of the future of Kau. You know, if Berta can't pay them because she's got all these other um, issues like backed up stock. Uh, this may be something that they won't even get their paycheck. So she's kind of struggling with how to find workers at, on top of everything else. But uh, Berta Miranda actually had a really good year last year. She was one, uh, one of those with the uh, award-winning coffee uh, in the festival last, in the Ka'u Coffee Festival last year. And she actually thought, I can expand operations. This is a good time to open up a coffee shop near my farm to bring in, you know, tourists. Uh, but once she actually finished building that shop in February of this year, COVID hit. And so uh, here's Miranda talking about her plight. Yeah, we we think every day about that. If we go have enough money to pay for the pickers or we we, we go able to sell the coffee, we don't know what will happen. Praise God, you know, this is a family business. I have four kids and my husband, and we work together. And... Um, that's the only way we can keep uh, uh, we can keep open the coffee shop. So Danielle is saying, you know, another impact or sort of impact to the industry for this is a lot of this coffee will likely be going to the Kona coffee market. So he explains there's a there's a distinction there, but he explains that. And what's going to happen is all this Kona coffee. If we don't buy coffee this year, is going to go into the Kona markets, and Kona's mm-hmm. already in deep trouble with lawsuits, counterfeiting, and, you know, the Kona brand is slipping. And, you know, again, now uh, this influx of uh, Kairu coffee uh, will find its way up there. Even if that's illegal. You, you cannot sell Kairu coffee in Tacona and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So stay within the district boundaries. Coffee is district sensitive. So lots to consider in the sort of figuring out the future of Kairu coffee right now. And so, gosh, that's 
Uh, I don't, I know, I'm thinking, how long does coffee last? <laughs> <laughs> right, and you've got different, so he's got uh, coffee cherries. There are folks who have gotten to the beans, uh, to the bean phase of development, so some of it does last, but when you can't move it, it's going to be hard to figure out what they're going to do with next year's harvest, or this year's harvest, I should say. Okay, makes me want to go out and buy a pound of coffee <laughs> right after the show. Okay, They'd <laughs> support our farmers, it, yeah. right? <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Kubehi. Mahalo. HBR's Kubehi Rishi reporting on how the pandemic has affected Hawaii coffee growers. You can find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Later in this hour, we'll be looking at a new study on the federal maritime law known as the Jones Act. So we wanted to go back to the origins of Hawaii's shipping business for today's Backyard Quiz. In 1882, Captain William Matson began sailing to the Hawaiian Islands from his home port of San Francisco. The first voyage to Hawaii carried 300 tons of food, supplies, and general merchandise on the schooner Emma Claudina. On his return voyage, uh, Matson brought with him a vast supply of sugar produced from the island's emerging sugarcane industry. And over the years, Matson expanded his shipping fleet with larger vessels that included cutting-edge techno uh, technological innovations in the world of shipping, such as cold storage, electric lights, and ships fueled by oil instead of steam. Now, Captain Matson also expanded his business portfolio by dabbling in oil exploration, luxury ocean liners, and hotels. When William Matson died, he had 14 ships in his fleet that included both cargo ships and passenger vessels. For your quiz today, can you name the year that Captain William Matson passed away? If you know it, call us at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com. The 
Grassroots Institute of Hawaii just released a study that found the 100-year-old federal maritime law, known as the Jones Act, costs the average Hawaii family almost $1,800 a year. Now, the report was the focus of a webinar last week with two Jones Act reformers in Congress, Representative Ed Case and Senator Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah. Here's a clip of what Representative Case had to say. From my perspective, what this study does is once and for all lend credibility to the basic the basic underlying conclusion that the Jones Act does in fact result in major negative impacts to Hawaii in particular, and of course to other non-contiguous areas of our country. And, I, and I'm sure Senator Lee will speak to the rest of the country as well. My own focus here is on our non-contiguous areas uh, because um, as we all know in Hawaii, but those that are uh, watching and thinking about this for the first time, consider that you live in a state that has 97% plus of all of its imports come in by ship. So we don't have planes uh, that bring it in. We have some planes, but not a whole bunch. We don't have any trucks. We don't have any trains. It's got to be shipping. So if you can get a hold of the shipping lanes, um, you can make some money off of that. And that's exactly what's happening with the Jones Act. The Conversations Jason Ubai spoke with Grassroots Institute President and CEO Kelly Akina about the study. We're really excited about this recent study on the costs of the Jones Act because during the debates, there's really never been a resource to turn to that showed precisely how much the Jones Act impacts the Hawaii economy and how much it costs. We now have that. We were able to put together using a gold standard, an outstanding study. Um, our research team is peer-reviewed. It's a great product, and it's available for anyone to view by going to our website. What were the key findings that you found in the study? Well, the big takeaway of the grassroots study is that we found that the median annual cost of the Jones Act to the Hawaii economy is $1.2 billion. Now, when you think about that, that's a huge amount when we add it to the already exorbitant cost of living in our state. And because of the Jones Act, Hawaii has approximately 9,100 fewer jobs, and that represents a loss of $404 million in wages. Every year, the average family in Hawaii pays an additional $389 for housing costs. $248 for groceries and restaurants, an additional $200 for vehicles and parts, and $61 more for gas. In total, when we add up all the ways we are impacted by the Jones Act, each family in Hawaii pays $1,793 more than our mainland counterparts do, due to the costs of the Jones Act. Can you explain for our listeners how does the Jones Act add so much cost to regular consumer goods and things that they're purchasing and basically our cost of living here. Well, everyone knows that we in Hawaii are surrounded by water. So is Puerto Rico. That means that both of our regions require things to be shipped in. Almost everything has to be brought in from outside. And the cost of shipping is exorbitant in part because of the fact that the Jones Act has limited the number of ships that are able to service Hawaii. It does that by being a protectionist act. It requires that the only ships that can be used to take cargo between American ports must be built in the United States, so we can't buy them from our allies. As a result, they're more expensive, they're older, they create monopolies, and in the end, the consumer has to pay much more for consumer goods that are brought by ships. If somehow we could open up the market a bit and loosen the Jones Act, we, we could have better competition and more ships serving Hawaii. That's one of the arguments for the Jones Act. Supporters say that it does protect American jobs, including stevedores and shipbuilders, but you're saying that there's competition. What is your response to this argument that if we took away the Jones Act, we wouldn't have 
jobs for our local people and people here in, a, in the U.S.? A lot of times people don't understand exactly how the Jones Act works. It's a 100-year-old set of laws, and there's probably no way that we're going to end up getting rid of all of those laws. In fact, the good news is we don't have to repeal the Jones Act and all of its laws. We can make a simple tweak to it and get the benefits of reducing the costs to consumers. That tweak we could make is to simply allow our commercial shippers to buy their ships from our allies, buy them overseas rather than having to buy them only in the United States. And the good thing about that is that it doesn't affect any other plank of the Jones Act. We could still crew them with U.S. workers, union workers. We could still fly the U.S. flag. We could still impose U.S. requirements in terms of safety of the ships. There would be no loss of jobs. The only thing that would happen is that ships would be available at a lower cost. More ships would be in the market, more competition, and the prices to consumers would drop. In updating the Jones Act for the 21st century, one of the best places to start would simply be to allow our commercial shippers to purchase their ships from overseas rather than restrict them to United States-built ships. There just aren't enough in the United States, and their cost is exorbitant. Now, we already buy cars overseas, planes overseas, and cell phones overseas. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being able to buy ships from overseas. In fact, that's why the military pays foreign-built ships to transport goods. But the good news about buying your ships from overseas is that that does not in any way impact the other provisions of the Jones Act, the Jones Act provisions that protect American jobs and potentially, at least in one point in history, provided for national security. Those wouldn't be touched by simply altering the U.S. build requirement. I might add also that if the Jones Act were updated, Hawaii families could see an annual across-the-board economic benefit of up to $154 million, and annual tax revenues would be $148.2 million higher. And if we look specifically at modifying the U.S. shipbuild requirement and allowing our commercial shippers to buy from outside of the U.S., we could see an economic benefit of $531 million and $30.8 million more in state and local tax revenues. Last week, I did speak with John Reeve. There was the study from the American Maritime Partnership. Their findings were a lot different than what you guys found. Do you have a response to their study? What is the major difference? I mean, how did they come to such a different conclusion? The study you're referring to was put together or sponsored by the American Maritime Partnership. And they represent the shipping industry, and it is in their interest in order to it is in their interest to protect the Jones Act and keep it the same. Um, our study comes from a different point of view. Ours is an academic peer-reviewed study that rigorously looks at the research and the data itself and doesn't have any foregone conclusion in the beginning. We wanted to see what the actual costs of the Jones Act were and use that in order to make decisions. I know this has been a discussion for a long time with a lot of small business owners, business owners in general. What do you think this study is going to do now with making some headway on some reform for the Jones Act? When it comes to reforming the Jones Act, it's important to recognize that the issue is not a partisan issue with Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other side. In fact, recently, Grassroot Institute brought together uh, a panel of congressmen, including Representative Ed Case and Senator Mike Lee. One is a Democrat and one is a Republican. They were both in agreement that it's time to update the Jones Act, and they both agreed that it's to, the it's to the benefit of all people, including union members and members of both political parties, 
to update the Jones Act because the bottom line is that updating the Jones Act will bring prices down for consumers. One key to Jones Act reform is to recognize that in the past there used to be only the option of repealing the Jones Act versus keeping it the same. But if we look at a middle ground and recognize that we can simply adjust one aspect of the Jones Act, particularly where we buy our ships, we can have all the benefits of the reduced economic costs to our economy and consumers, and we can protect those values that are dear to many segments of the society, such as protecting union jobs, American workforce, and ensuring that they have a safe place to work on our ships. I think the important thing is to recognize that the world is different today than it was 100 years ago when the Jones Act was conceived of. We do commerce differently. We do warfare differently. The geopolitical scene is different. The economics of the world are different. And it's time, at the very least, during all that period of time, to update some of the provisions of the Jones Act. I think that this study shows that there's strong need to do that because it shows clearly that the way the Jones Act is now imposes an incredible economic burden upon the Hawaii people and upon our economy. It's time to update the Jones Act, we feel, for the 21st century. That was Kili Akina, president and CEO of the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, talking about a new study on how much the Jones Act costs Hawaii residents. To find links to the study, visit hawaiipublicradio.org. We should note that Akina is also a trustee at large for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and is currently running for re-election. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the pressure growing for more transparency when it comes to positive COVID cases. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. So you were monitoring the uh, COVID committee meetings yesterday. Yes. And you know, one of the things that, that came out was that the committee really wants uh, more information from the Department of Health, uh, more detailed information about what's causing uh, these cases to spread, uh, what activities are responsible, and um, how, what re- activities are relatively safe. You know, we posed that same question to uh, DOH officials uh uh, in previous weeks, uh, you know, it, when it comes to care homes, because that was uh, something that was brought up that, you know, in some states, they have a website and they just tell you, you know, uh, where these cases are, whether it's a government office, a private business, a farm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what our uh, uh, what the c- committee wants to know. But again, according to Scott Psyche, the House Speaker, um, he asked and got a pretty emphatic no from the Department of Health. And I wonder if it's, you know, because of our privacy laws that they're just 
so reluctant to disclose that information? Well, that's what the speaker said, uh, that the, the comment was about privacy laws. But the response is, look, saying a category of, of activity or place where something happened really wouldn't affect anyone's privacy at all. You know, and I know we just learned, you know, that uh, the Department of Education had a number of positive cases in summer school. I know that came as a surprise to, I think, the teachers union and uh, and many families, too, because they wanted to know, oh, what school was it, right? Right. I mean, the key ultimately is people want to know what they can do that's safe, uh, which will help the economy. It, it, we. As uh, Carl Bonham, the executive director of the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, said yesterday, he said, look, if, if people are, are afraid to go out, they won't go out to do things that are safe, possibly safe, we don't know, like maybe going to the grocery store in a mask. If that's safe, people should be, should know, and, and re- or relatively safe, should know that and, and be uh, encouraged uh, to do it, or at least not discouraged or uh, either either tacitly from uh, some fear of the unknown. Yeah, it's interesting. I happened to be in a department store yesterday, and I was the only one on the whole floor. Uh, wow. You know, and and so yeah, it just it, it you know, and yet some stores you see lines to go in. You know, the smaller uh, mom and pop boutique stores, maybe there's a line out the door. But uh, it, yeah, so you want to know where's the risk? You know. No, exactly. Uh, again, you know, someone um, actually just sent a text saying, "Good point." That uh, a store owner saying, "You know, this is this is something people should know. If it's safe to go somewhere and go shopping, um, we should know it because it, especially a local business, it, it really does help the local economy. If money stays here and people are shopping here, um, that's good for us, uh, for the economy. Money's spreading through throughout the economy. But again, if people are afraid, they're just going to stay home. Yeah, I, I did uh, uh, get flagged that someone was driving by a, uh, a beer place and nobody was social distancing. And so... Yeah, if there are places wow. that you should steer clear from, yeah, you you do want to know. Right. Well, again, I got we do have the bars being uh, closed for for a while, and uh, gatherings again going back to being uh, relatively small uh, uh, gatherings. Uh, so so this is you know we're having this retrenching or pulling back, but. I think the real concern that was voiced by the economists and, and officials during the meeting yesterday was that we don't want overkill. If people are afraid, because again, we have 144 cases, I believe, and now new cases announced today. Um, if people are afraid and they say, well, we're not going to do anything, then that's going to hurt the economy. Um, and if people don't know, well, hey, a lot of these things are happening because of gatherings, family gatherings at the beach and potlucks and whatever else, people should know don't do that. And Speaker Psyche was also pushing, you know, for information about who's coming back from, you know, hot spots like Vegas or places like that. Exactly. Now, this is key because if if tourists are bringing it, we want to know it. If residents are bringing it when they come home from somewhere, we want to know that as well. From what we understood, at least early on, if you recall, the tourists weren't people bringing most of the cases here. It was people coming home. Right. Yeah. And if they're going to kind of open up uh, and re- relax restrictions on, uh, on uh, Trans-Pacific travel, 
we've got to really do some work here to get these numbers down. But That's thanks, right. thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces until 9 p.m. on Pauhana Friday evenings through September 11th. HonoluluMuseum.org. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. on HPR2 as we begin our broadcasts from the most recent Hawaii Symphony Orchestra performance season. American conductor Michael Stern leads a symphonic celebration featuring Berlioz's epic Symphony Fantastique, and violinist Sandy Cameron performs Danny Elfman's Violin Concerto 1111. That's today at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Furniture Plus Design. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now look to space and hear about a catastrophe that was averted on the red planet. It's time for your Tuesday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. As usual, we are thankful for the guidance of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn, can still be seen in the east in the evening sky after 6.30 p.m. The moon is approaching its last quarter phase towards week's end, so we can expect a return of darker skies as the week goes on. And back to the most recent Mars exploratory mission and a cliffhanger of sorts, huh? It's a little bit of trouble avoided, and give us the uh, full rundown. Yep, it's drama in space this week as the newly launched Mars 2020 mission and its rover Perseverance encountered an error that left the spacecraft in a safe mode state. The safe mode state was initiated as a result of a series of communications issues and temperature readings that indicated that the spacecraft was too cold. Thankfully, the outage was brief and Perseverance returned to full operations as it began its cruising phase to the Red Planet. They must have been pretty scared there in mission control, especially since this is the one with the new little uh, helicopter drone thing, right? So does this happen much? Well, hiccups on launch are a regular feature of any space launch, actually. And launches put incredible stresses and strains on the equipment being lifted into orbit. There are violent vibrations, temperature and pressure fluctuations, and even problems that can occur with fuel flow and engine efficiency. Remember that launch vehicles are basically high-tech fireworks. Whether it's a Martian rover or a crew of astronauts, all they can really do is ride the fire and hold on for dear life. That's a great description. So tell everyone what happened with the uh, spacecraft's temperature. Well, it appears that as it passed through the Earth's shadow, the cooling system for the rover's nuclear battery became colder than expected. This triggered the safe mode to initiate. However, had the spacecraft trajectory taken it into orbit in full sunlight, it's likely this would never have occurred. In any case, mission control isn't too worried. And that means about seven months from now, we should have an exciting Stargazer report of 
touchdown, fingers crossed, right? Fingers crossed. <laughs> right now, Perseverance is speeding toward a February touchdown on Mars and the beginning of a historic mission. We're going to hope it happens, and we know we'll hear about it with you, Christopher Phillips, and thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And folks can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Kaka'ako Innovation Block, housing the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation's Entrepreneur Sandbox. FerraroChoi.com. Earlier in our Backyard Quiz, we talked a little bit about the start of the Matson Navigation Company and Captain William Matson. The company was founded in 1882, the same year that Captain Matson sailed the schooner Emma Claudina from San Francisco to Hawaii, bringing a ship full of goods to the islands and a vast cargo of sugar on the way back to the mainland. The success of his import-export business to the islands led to the founding of the Matson Navigation Company, which had a significant impact on other industries, such as oil and tourism. By the time Matson died, his fleet expanded from a single schooner to 14 ships that carried both passengers and goods. And for our quiz today, we wanted to know the year that we lost the founder of the Matson shipping lines. Well, William Matson died over 100 years ago at the age of 67 in the year 1917. And we did get a call from Alex from Hawaii Kai, who said that her mother knew the answer, but she was driving. So congratulations, Mom. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Zero Waste School Hui was in the news last year after the program was at risk of shutting down due to an unexpected loss of state funds. Private donations and a stalwart staff has kept the program going by diverting organics from the waste stream and following what's called the Ka'ohau Protocol. The Hui successfully operates composting, vermicomposting, and worm farms at five different Kailua schools. For our Malka to Makai segment, producer Lillian Song visited Enchanted Lake Elementary to catch up with co-founder and coordinator Mindy Jaffe. So we started at Lanikai. Most people know it as Lanikai Elementary, but now it's Ka'ohau Public Charter School. We really got a chance to develop over there. I came from Pearl City High, where I'd been running this program for a couple of years, and I got kicked out. Even though we won a national award from the EPA for that program over there, they kicked me out. They said, you've got to go somewhere else. We just feel very exposed to liability. They were afraid they were going to get sued by the waste haulers because we were reducing the waste so much. We were threatening them. So I'd been doing the worms. I'd been coming once a week early in the morning to do their worms at, at Lanikai. And I said, you want me full time? And they jumped right on it. They're a, a charter school. They have a little bit more flexibility. So I started over there in January of 2014. And I took everything I was doing and I refined it even more. We added more things. I got more student involvement. We got a dishwasher over there. It's the only school in the entire state of Hawaii with a dishwasher. We don't have any waste over there. I mean, it's just nothing. 
after a few years, we had this down to absolute turnkey procedures and protocols. And we decided to name it the Ka'ohau Protocol because that's where it was developed. And we went to Ke'elipulu after that, bam, right in, and then bam, Kainalu, and then KIS and Enchanted Lake. We got our five schools within a few years. And now, you know, we've been, we're very established everywhere. It is so efficient and um, it works 100% of the time. You know, we just got it down. So the idea that the state wanted to spend money doing a study on this just seemed ridiculous to me because we've, we've already done that. We've made all the mistakes, we've had all the failures, we've eliminated the not so great things and, and uh, refined the really good things to the point where I can hit a campus and in that day, on day one, it's a zero waste campus. So we want to see that expanded throughout the, the island. I, you know, I really want to expand complex-wide and then island-wide. I don't see any reason. It takes some training. You can see it's very labor-intensive. All these guys are working real hard. Um, I think it's within reach. There is money in the uh, DOE waste management budget. Right now, 100% of it goes to uh, the trash haulers, goes to the dumpster and landfill model, H-Power model. And if they could um, diversify that a little bit, back in 2002, when I was in the ledge, we diversified um, the state's investment in energy. It used to be all oil and gas and coal, and they said, let's diversify. There's hydrothermal, you know, there's wind, there's solar. So they did the renewable standards portfolio, and they started to look at alternative ways of dealing with energy and diversified their investment, their portfolio. And I want them to do the same thing with waste management. There's more than just the dumpster landfill, the dumpster H-Power model. This alternative, the biological models, are all very well tested throughout the world. And they need to stretch their brains a little bit and let us in. Uh, some of that financing, because we're reducing the dumpster volume so much, and only need one dumpster pickup a week because there's no organics in there to rot. There's plenty of money in there. So I'd like to see them split up some of that budget and uh, allow the schools that want to do this to opt out of the dumpster contract, do their own negotiations, their own arrangement with the dumpster people because we still need the dumpster, and instead use that money for resource recovery. And we believe that over all these years we have proven the waste diversion is solid and steady and real. Uh, we have data going up the kazoo. I mean, we've, we've been collecting numbers for a long time. We're educating your kids. We're giving them a whole new way of thinking about their agency in the world as they move through it and as they need to move into the future. So um, we're only asking for people to, to look at what's there and open their minds a little bit. We did it with energy 20 years ago. Let's do it now with waste. So we're just going to go to the cafeteria. Now I'm going to talk to you about the pre-pandemic, the previous perfect world we had, which is not is going to be disrupted now. Mm -hmm. uh, we pretty we have had this down to absolute science and so efficient and so productive. We had a, what we call a separation station. So every kid came through a little double line. They all gathered and they would dump out their unfinished milk, then do all their rubbish, milk carton, fork, napkin, condiment and then dump their food into a bucket and then stack their trays. So they all did this and they got real fast at it and real efficient. And within minutes after each lunch, we were collecting all the food. 
So that's what is changing now because they're distributing these kids far and wide, not only over space, but over time. So this used to be real quick. And the food is the high octane fuel that runs this engine. We've got to have that food. And um, so we capture that nutrient rich, valuable decaying organic matter to run our composting operation. And at this school, um, on average, maybe 180 pounds a day. Several times we will top over 200 pounds a day. Uh, so it's a lot. With all the five schools, we were doing 3,500 pounds a week. So quite a bit of post-consumer waste. The kitchen would give us their prep waste. That will stay the same. We'll still be able to capture the salad trimmings, the skins and peels and rinds from the kitchen. So that waste we'll have, and that's what goes to the worms. But what feeds our compost piles is this post-consumer stuff, the plate scrapings, and that is the, the hard part when school opens again, figuring out how they're gonna do it. So goodbye cafeteria, goodbye separation station, goodbye us interacting with the kids to help them sort and separate their food out. We'll figure out a way, but for now, that is off the table. So anyway, what we used to do in our pre-pandemic perfect world is we'd get all of our buckets, and after each lunch, I would load them up on my little uh, wagon here, and I would weigh each bucket with our little scale, and you know, pick it up, weigh it, and I'd mark it in a, a log book. So we would, we would weigh and log all of our food waste after each lunch, and at the end, we would have a total, and the last trip down to the compost pile, we would do our data board. So come on down, I'll show, you, I'll show you our data board. This is how we keep track of the compost piles we're building. Here's a little scale model cutout of our compost pile. Underneath we have some sticks, yay big, for aeration and drainage. So we do a layer of mulch, and then we start laying our food. Usually at this school there's so much we do two and sometimes even three layers of food. And we water as we go, keeping everything really moist. We will add up our food as we go until we have a thousand pounds. So each of our piles is roughly a thousand pounds, give or take. You reclaim all this waste, organic matter, food waste, paper product, and you've turned it into compost, vermicomposting. And worms. And worms. Three products right there. The public, parents love it. Uh, you can tell because it flies out the door. Yep, flies out the door. What has been the return for each campus? How well have they done? It takes a few years for this to all go. The first year, all you're doing is building. The second year, you start harvesting. You're harvesting your vermicast after a year, and you're harvesting your compost after a year, and your worm colony is big enough to cull for worm sales in a year. So the first year, they don't make anything, but the second year, the money starts to come in. By the third year, depending on the campus and how much resource they have, um, they're making anywhere from $5,000 to $20,000 annually. Um, it, it's probably in the 15000 average for each school. We could increase our prices and make that more, but we don't. We want all of our products to be very accessible to you know, community members and to farmers. Um, but yeah, they can, they can count on this kind of money coming uh, annually. Uh, our biggest school right now, as far as resource, is Enchanted Lake, and I told the principal, Mrs. Mack, Mrs. McElorney, told her, you guys did great your first year of making money, and I anticipate that um, by next year you'll be doing eighteen dollars to $20,000 in recovered resource product sales. This is what you, know, you used to throw into the dumpster. 
and it would cost the taxpayer to haul it away. And now we're making money for you with these waste products. And she's like, this is amazing. We don't have to do anything for this. This is our waste. We, you know, we're paying to have it hauled away. Uh, even though there's nothing in the dumpster, we still have to pay for it. That's crazy. But we're making money off of what used to be uh, something we had to pay for. So that avoided cost would be great to have because now we have the money to uh, support this program bigger and better and at more schools. I don't see a downside to it other than it takes some work, mm -hmm. you know? I'm developing a green workforce. That when, when Castle Foundation gave us the money, I, I told them, they said, you know, what are you, what are you doing for this money? I said, I'm, I'm building a workforce, a green, green, you know, people talk about green jobs. This is a green job, folks. This is a green job. I'm teaching people how to do this, and I want a green workforce. I want everybody to know how to do this. It's not rocket science. It does take experience and practice to get good at it, and that's why they spend a year with me. And once they have the Kaohau protocol down, they're ready to move to other schools. And we've done that once with our, our very first apprentice, Augusto de Castro, who is now at Manoa Elementary and doing a fantastic job. Uh, he was financed by the Garden Club of Honolulu, who gave us one year apprenticeship funding. And boy, was that ever a great investment. Not only was he a wonderful worker for us all year, but he was absolutely capable of starting a campus from scratch on his own. And Manoa has just had an impressive, impressive first year. That's a tough school because they've got rain and wind. Oh, very tough school. But um, Augusto's done an amazing job and he couldn't have done it if he hadn't spent a year with us learning a turnkey operation that is absolutely foolproof. So uh, he knew exactly what to do the day he hit the ground and on day one they were a zero waste school. Hui staff and trainees were busy in the morning sun, poking and soaking compost piles and feeding and rebedding worm bins. Betsy Dyer lives and breathes the zero-waste lifestyle and has been working with Mindy Jaffe for over a year, ever since her youngest child started kindergarten. Dyer took a break from pitchforks and the water hoses to describe what it takes to be a resource recovery specialist. It takes physical strength, I'll tell you that. Uh, we work our butts off, uh, hustling, shoveling, mulching, digging, lugging buckets. Uh, it takes a lot of physical strength. And then um, it just takes a dedication to the concept um, that we're working towards and a lot of belief that we're doing the right thing and to keep doing it day in and day out despite all of the challenges that we've come across. And it's funny, I work with the fifth graders at Ka'elepulu and I'll, I'll get two of them per week. And on Monday, they're like, ew, we have to touch this? Gross. What's going on? I have to do what? And by Friday, they are like, give me the bucket. Give me the hose. I don't need gloves. Let me just get in this pile. It really uh, gets us through the day, and it's worth all the hard work when people come back and say, you can't believe the tomatoes that I've got growing right now. They're just gobsmacked at the gorgeous product that we sell. So that's always really rewarding when people come out and support us. And one of the newest additions to the Hui is intern Joshua Domingo. In June 2019, he was an agribusiness Peace Corps volunteer in Uganda. However, when COVID hit, his time there was cut short. He was evacuated, he returned home to Hawaii, and all his plans shifted. The information technology and business graduate says his future no longer lies behind a desk as he's pivoted to farming and agriculture. Since coming back, I started to be more appreciative about 
all the things that I've seen and done. When I was working there in Uganda, I got to grow my own corn, I got to grow my own sweet potato, and it was like very rewarding in that sense. And I was just, you know, it was really cool. You get to share it with other people and they get to eat the food that you grow. When people think about farming or th people think just simply about composting, that like, oh, I gotta do these, I gotta do these, it's like, it becomes so complicated from the outside that it becomes a barrier to so many people that, oh, I gotta buy this, I gotta buy that. Um, oh, it's too expensive, I don't really wanna spend money, we don't have space. One of the things that Mindy helped to show me was that it's simple in that all we're doing is caking food waste, putting it in a pile, and covering up with either mulch or the surrounding soil and then just doing that over and over again and the same thing with worms you know it's it's a bit more complicated but overall i think everybody can learn this everyone can pick this up and when school starts uh, later this month the hui will be funded by a grant and aid money awarded by the city and county of Honolulu. This will cover staff to maintain the living system stewarded by the Windward Zero Waste School Hui. For now, Jaffe and her team are in a holding pattern waiting for August 17th when Keiki will be back on campus generating food waste. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we continue our discussion of the racial wealth gap in America and how to address it. It would be investing in purchasing land. It would invest in things like business ventures. And later, how one researcher's unique name led her to study the impact a name can have on a student's future. Several of these students, they were going on to be STEM majors, and they changed. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we talk one-on-one -on -one with State Health Director Bruce Anderson. We would like to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about the growing number of COVID cases? How do you feel about your child returning to school? Do you think campuses are ready? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation.